Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is uh, Davis Sawyer. He's a co-founder and chief product officer at a company called Deep Light. And their website is uh, deeplight.ai. Light is spelled L-I-T-E. So, Davis, how are you doing today? Not bad at all. Thank you very much, Richard, for having me. It's um, you know, really exciting for us to share what we're building at Deep Light. Uh, you know, calling in from Montreal today. And yeah, so we're really excited to share what, what we're up to. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, tell me, what's the premise of the company? Right, right. So deep light, as the name implies, uh, relates to deep learning. So hence the deep and light in the sense that these are, you know, faster, more agile, leaner, deep neural networks. Because right now, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, everyone's kind of seen in, in the media and in, in daily life, artificial intelligence has kind of solved these really, really cool problems for us. So, for example, recognizing objects in photos or translating speech to text automatically. It's kind of revolutionized a lot of consumer technologies, a lot of deep technologies, and it's kind of led to this resurgence. But there's some fundamental challenges with really using deep learning in our daily lives. Uh, you know, for example, to do one classification, so one object detection, takes billions of operations for a deep neural network. And so it's very tough to scale these kinds of systems. And so DeepLight was started around the idea of increasing the energy efficiency of AI computing. So right now, you know, if you have something like Google Photos, for example, it processes all your data in the cloud. And that works for some applications, but for real-time or large-scale tasks, you know, that's just not enough. And so the question is, how can we put this computation on low-end devices like smartphones? And so that's what DeepLight's really all about, is making AI more accessible and affordable and really bringing it to what's called the edge, uh, edge of computing, so to low-end devices that are you know, more cost-effective and overall have less of an energy footprint on our, on our kind of planet. Yeah, I guess that's going to be the near future. You know, smartphones are used for everything, so that's where AI needs to live in order yeah, to uh, no, make all the true. applications uh, better. Very, very true. Yeah, these kind of ubiquitous devices that are, you know, just just simply uh, affordable. Um, you think about how kind of daily life changed when you had, you know, your laptop or maybe a desktop computer, and then you brought all that power and more into the palm of your hand. And so with us, you know, a similar paradigm shift is what we're trying to create with AI. So moving that computation, moving that kind of capability, um, you know, from a, a centralized source into, you know, like the, the individual. And a good example would be something like, um, you know, agrotechnology. So you're out in the field and you have your cell phone with you, as kind of everyone does, and you can actually process deep neural networks on your smartphone to look at your crops, to look at the health of a livestock, for example. And that's really, if you think about how we can help people, the edge or these low-end devices like smartphones is where it should happen. So where would be the uh, the bulk of the computational power, though? If you have a smartphone, are you just assuming, okay, it's connected to the internet, so a cloud-based AI is better, or do you want it resident on the phone so there's not this back-and-forth uh, you know, movement of data in order to, to run an AI? Yeah, exactly. So that kind of bandwidth is a really important question now for a lot of companies, especially as they want to scale up you know, their adoption. So... A good example here would be something like, like self-driving cars. So the kind of three user-based or kind of micro problems that we look at with AI right now is connectivity, latency, and privacy. So those are maybe the three kind of main motivations right now to offload computation to the device itself. You know, if you're processing data that's sensitive, like medical images, for example, or if you're doing a real-time task like a self-driving vehicle, or you're in a setting like a, a drone robotics where you can't guarantee connection to the internet. 
So for the kind of mission critical tasks like pedestrian detection, you have to have some robustness. You have to have some kind of reliability to say, hey, I know that without internet connectivity in real time, I can process this workload safely. And so right now, the, the kind of caveat to that, though, is the world wasn't built to handle these workloads. You can either kind of make a world fit for AI or you can make AI fit into the world. And some companies are taking the hardware problem where it's, okay, let's, let's build better chipsets, let's build more powerful hardware. And a lot of companies like DeepLight are saying, hey, let's look under the hood of, you know, what's happening in this processing, look at the fundamental calculations and see if we can do it better. And that's really where, where, we're, where we're trying to solve problems. So you're looking at the structure of a deep neural network itself, for instance, and making it less computationally intensive, intensive right? Yeah, bingo. And I mean, some of our inspiration doesn't just come from, you know, hardware and, and chipsets and semiconductors. The human brain actually itself uh, prunes. So what it meant by that is as you get older, so when you're born, you might have, uh, you know, a few million neurons or a few million neural connections. As you hit about seven or eight years old, you peak. And then as you get older, your brain starts to reduce connections to make it more efficient. And so this is for memory savings and energy savings. You think about it, a brain operates on about 20 watts and can do all the, the crazy, incredible things we can do with our brains. One GPU, which can handle a bit of AI, has 250 watts. And so there's this kind of, there's this kind of fundamental trade-off of, you know, can we put, get more computation at a lower power budget? So how do you, yeah, what are some of the, you know, without giving away proprietary stuff, what are some of the <laughs> true, things true. you found, you know, what are some of the concepts you found, the things you found that, make things less computationally intensive. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, under, under the hood of, of DeepLight's technology and, and some of the well-known you know, model compression techniques out there, there's these kind of basic optimizations. So pruning, like the one I mentioned of removing connections, there's things like quantization where you can change the precision of the computation. So instead of, you know, 32 bits, it's eight bits or something like that. Um, and you can use uh, different techniques like knowledge distillation. So you have a teacher network and then you train a smaller network, a student network, based on the size of that teacher one. But one of the problems is right now it takes a lot of manual effort. So you have a, an expert, a human expert, who knows the domain, who knows the models, and kind of handcrafts a smaller architecture and compresses it. But the problem is, you know, the skill set for that is very unique and very expensive and not accessible to a lot of companies who are using deep learning in production, using deep learning in their, in their business model, and can't really attract or use that talent. And so what DeepLight's kind of investing in right now is we're training using what's called reinforcement learning and agents that can knows how to optimize these models. So you kind of show it ways of compressing models and it can automatically do so. And I think that's really important for helping, you know, the kind of AI community at large and helping all these businesses out there who are using AI and want to make it more cost effective, want to make it faster. And so that's why we've invested in, in kind of an automated way to this optimization, um, which, you know, people are, are very excited to use in their environment. So well, yeah, what kind of problems are you pointing this towards? What are the most important problems and uh you know, what kind of right. increases in speed or ability? Yeah. So I think, you know, where you definitely want to use a product like this is somewhere that has the biggest economic and the biggest kind of end user impact where you can really solve, you know, a pertinent problem for someone. And where the biggest case we've seen is uh, an example of self-driving vehicles. So right now, you know, the automotive industry kind of has this, this typical problem of low operating margins and they're entering into, you know, a very challenging innovation domain in terms of, you know, ADAS systems, assisted driving and there, you know, the argument to be made is you can move people and things around a lot safer. And so DeepLight fits in this equation with the kind of the autonomous vehicles and, and assisted mobility is making the inference time faster on low-end hardware. So once you kind of ship an autonomous car, it, you can't change the hardware on it. So to make the kind of software brain of the vehicle more efficient, it becomes a pure, pure software play at that point. 
And so Deployed has been lucky to help work on some proof of concepts in industry where we've been able to make their models faster by an order of magnitude. And it's, it's a really, really interesting problem for us because to go from 10 cars and testing to 10,000 vehicles on the road, you can't have them all connected to the internet, all creating huge amounts of data. You know, it's just not a scalable um, approach. And so to put as much intelligence on the vehicles themselves, you know, for robustness, privacy, latency concerns, that's something that DeepLight's been fortunate to work on with our team, and we're really excited about the impact of. All right, well, when you talk about latency, so I can understand the latency and the data connection, but hmm. have you improved the speed, the computational speed itself in yeah, general? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if so I have a, a, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So really how it looks like is a company might come to us and say, hey, guys, you know, we need this object detection algorithm to work on a chip that has five megabytes of memory. Uh, response time needs to be 100 milliseconds, and my accuracy has to be 98%. And based on their hardware, you know, DeepLight's engine takes these constraints and produces a model that satisfies, satisfies them. So if currently right now, you know, their inference time is 500 milliseconds, and they need to push the needle to under 50 milliseconds, our engine, based on those constraints, produces an optimized model. And so it depends on the complexity of the problem. But we've been able to, to move the needle quite a bit in terms of compression. One example, on an architecture well-known from Microsoft called ResNet, we're able to achieve over 50 times compression, so making the model much, much, much smaller and consequentially much faster as well. It's very hardware invaded, very data dependent in terms of the exact numbers, but on some of the state-of-the-art models, we've achieved um, you know, 50x plus, which is really promising. Well, what are some of the other levers? What about the size of the required data set to get a given accuracy? You know, like everyone True. says, uh, you need lots of data, whatever that means, and no one defines it. And you <laughs> found a way to uh, get good accuracy with less than lots of data. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting avenue, right? I mean, as everyone kind of knows in industry, your data is the lifeblood of your application. It's the lifeblood of your, your AI, your intelligence at the end of the day. And so... You have unique kind of trade-offs where sometimes a company might have in a fashion setting or a retail setting where you have maybe a hundred different classes. It's not just, you know, a person. It's, you know, is it jeans? Is it a jean jacket? Is it a leather jacket? So it starts to have lots and lots of diversity in terms of what this AI system is supposed to do. And that becomes challenging, right? Because if you're trying to compress the network or make it smaller, you can't sacrifice any of that information. And so it's a big trade-off in terms of, well, how accurate do you want it to be and how small do you want it to be? And that's why with DeepLight, designing our reinforcement engine to satisfy those constraints, it helps us be flexible enough to meet all these different clients' needs instead of, you know, a specialized domain-specific approach to model optimization, which does work well. Um, in terms of the size of data, I think the second kind of scientific challenge here is once you've compressed a network, you typically have to update it to retrain it to get the accuracy up. And this takes time. It's very time-consuming. And so one of the things we're looking at as well in a kind of future direction, I think, of the industry is getting more accuracy, more prediction, more performance on less and less, more compact and smaller data sets. I mean, as an example, we are working on a project right now, and it took us a week uh, to, to, to fully download the data set. So it's a, it's a big bottleneck for everyone, and, and a lot of people are, can probably have stories that are even worse than that, but it's, um, it's one of the push right now is, can we extract more information on less data? What about the other comment I hear from every AI person is that, you know, neural networks and deep learning, and they're black boxes. You know, no one knows what's going on inside them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in order for you to increase speed or, uh, you know, improve the system, I would think you'd have to have some understanding of what's inside the black box. So, I mean, can you shed any light on that? Yeah, no, that, that's a super interesting avenue. And I'd say in terms of understanding, there's two approaches to it. So there's a statistical understanding and a kind of semantic understanding. 
So we might know within some kind of confidence interval, some magnitude of significance that this part of the network is detecting something very important, say in the first few layers. Or, you know, it's very sensitive to this data class where if you change the texture, if you change the lighting, we start to really lose performance. So we kind of have these statistical understandings of what the network's doing. But in terms of a semantic understanding, that becomes very challenging, especially in a place like, you know, financial services or medical recommendations and treatment. Because like you mentioned, you don't have a good way of, of justifying one action to the other. It's not a, a kind of Bayesian logic where, you know, given I observed, you know, redness and, and given that the person's this age and this height, I have a good idea, you know, based on my experience. You're right. That doesn't exist in deep learning. However, when you introspect into optimization techniques, a kind of side effect that's quite cool is you start to see a bit of the explainability side of the inference of why the network's saying what it is. In computer vision tasks, it's not as important to say, okay, well, it was a person because I detected, you know, the body shape of a person. But if you're, say, giving a financial advice to buy this ETF or buy the stock, then I can 100% guarantee someone's going to have to justify the explanation. And actually, another company in the mm. space that we'll give a shout out to, Darwin AI, they are focusing on explainability from University of Waterloo in Canada and doing a pretty cool job of it. Well, what is the, uh, so the black box part of it that everyone talks about means the uh, explainability, right? The semantics? Yeah. Is that what it, what it is? Yeah. Exactly. Know, do, you, do you have an example of a, um, a neural network where you do understand, quote, unquote, what's going on and ones where you don't? And what was the, the gap in understanding? Like, what couldn't you understand? Right, right. I mean, th this is totally dependent on the system you're trying to introspect, right? So if you're trying to analyze a stock market that has many hundreds of hidden layers and, and interactions between very disparate pieces, now the kind of dimensionality of your explanation space becomes very large. Whereas opposed if you're trying to explain a neural network that, you know, detects handwritten digits like ones and twos. So the complexity of the problem kind of lies within there. What explainability, I guess, if I were to, to put it in a simpler term, is justifying the sequential logic to the conclusion that was made by the network. So I'll, I guess I'll kind of fall back to the, In my previous work, I was in biotechnology. We're trying to predict the safety of a drug after its manufacturing process. And one of the tough things, you know, when you're dealing in a domain like chemistry or natural sciences is every expert in the field is going to ask why, the why, 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 why. And in a regulated right. environment, that just gets exacerbated. And so still to this day, I'm sure there's great research labs doing a lot of good work on it, but that remains an unsolved problem in our field, is kind of in very complex systems having a piecewise logic to the conclusion made by the network, which would be afforded by human judgment. Even if they're wrong, at least they can explain it. Okay, so it's like someone being really good at something and you say, how'd you do that? And they go, I don't know, I just did. And you can't <laughs> yeah, explain like how they did it. Reflex, you know, uh, exactly. Okay. And I mean, that's kind of there's a statistical intuition with deep neural networks, but there's not this kind of rational intuition, which, like you said, yeah, it's just I, I don't know. I just I just recognize that scenario. I recognize that pattern automatically. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Have you seen if there's a um, a dividing line? Have you looked at systems, you know, applied networks to them, solved them, and then you added in maybe one more variable, and now all of a sudden it it somehow crossed the line of ex of explainability or you know, is, is anyone playing in that arena? Yeah, you know, I was lucky to be at the Canadian FinTech Forum last year uh, through Finance Montreal. So it was this big symposium. And of course, one of the big topics was AI. So they had some great talent there and great people there from Google Brain locally and Element AI. And that was a topic of conversation about portfolio management was, all right, like if you're going to start managing money that can be done quite well with machine learning classifiers, deep learning neural networks, the natural problem is, is exactly what we're talking about in terms of explainability. And the topic got 
from the guys at Google Brain, I was interested to see, I think Hugo Rochelle was the one, were saying they can find certain areas in the network, like you mentioned, certain variables that might have more of an impact on a decision in certain settings. But we, what you just have to respect at the end of the day is the dimensionality of these systems. I mean, you have 60 million, 600 million parameters. You have huge, mm. huge, huge data sets. And that's really the, the, the kind of problem we're dealing with is just one of scale. There's just too many pieces and too many interdependencies to evaluate. And that's why they work so well is because they can process that. But what you sacrifice is the understanding. And I guess you've probably seen emergent behavior, you know, from networks, them not just solving hmm. a problem. But, you know, I've, I've read, uh, oh, you know, uh, an AI learns how to play a video game and it does something that no one's seen before. Or an AI yeah. creates, um, you know, a product that no one's ever thought about that design before. Right. You know, do you see right. emergent behavior in anything you do? And where does that come from? You know, that, that's a really cool topic. There's kind of this curiosity-driven learning where you try and leverage, I don't know, spontaneous discoveries or something like that. So you're right. I've seen some cool scenarios where, you know, a natural language algorithm started to generate its own stories or something like that. Or, like you said, with the reinforcement learning in the games, you know, it made a move that no human would ever make. And, and it's kind of exciting. I think that in, in media and in kind of our own sci-fi fantasies, we start to mystify maybe the truth, the ground truth, it could have been just a statistical anomaly, or maybe it's actually onto something, you know, that is truly groundbreaking. In our field, I think one of the cool things that we've been lucky to observe is how much anti-fragility there is to deep neural networks. What I mean by that is, you know, when you prune a hedge, for example, if you, you cut some branches off a tree, they typically grow back stronger. That means that when they get stressed, they respond, you know, better, like a flexing a muscle, basically. And with deep neural networks, it's kind of interesting. You see this informational resiliency where if you stress the network, meaning you force it to meet constraints or you put this kind of environmental pressure on your intelligent systems, they adapt. And that's kind of something that we've seen when we really push, you know, low power DNNs or, or you know, very, very fast inference. When you force it, by and large, as a, as a kind of information system, they exhibit this kind of biological anti-fragility. And that's something that we're kind of shocked by, but trying to understand more as we keep experimenting. Mm. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And then going back to the, you know, you said uh, latency, privacy, connectivity. Uh, we haven't talked really about the privacy part. Where would that come into play with uh, AI on, you know, edge computing on devices and, you know, what's important there to, to think about? Right. Right. So I think a good example of this would be why Apple released their A11 Bionic chip, um, you know, last year with the, with the release of the X is when you're handling workloads like a person's face, or perhaps maybe you have a wearable device that's offloading you know, some analysis of your heart rate variability. By and large, whether it's you know, GDPR, or it's just personal preference, or it's your user agreement, there's this kind of overall consensus, you know, thanks to uh, Facebook and you know, Cambridge Analytica events, where data processing is, is, is something that users are very conscious of in product lines, but also is now, in some cases, a, a regulatory obligation. And so back to the bionic chip is, these guys made a huge investment in building a whole new chipset that can actually process the face recognition algorithm on device because users are just by and large not comfortable with that being offloaded. And so the kind of the rest of the industry kind of, it's a good example of a kind of, I think a, a push towards the future of a lot of this computing. Cloud in the last eight years was a big buzzword and has really opened up some cool things for enterprises and users. It's commoditized, you know, uh, memory and all that kind of cool stuff, but it's been the backbone up until recently for deep learning. And now, as we can, um, you know, do new applications, do new use cases, we're seeing this kind of reversion back towards the device. And so with privacy, it can be domain-specific. There are settings where, 
it's not as big of a uh, you know a factor. But in particular, I'd say any kind of personal data or, of course, medical data, devices that want to handle those workloads are having to process it without offloading, or at the very least, offloading results without actually offloading the data itself. Okay, I gotcha. I guess I'll just add yeah. to that uh, just one bit. Um, in GDP under GDPR guidelines, you know, in, in Europe, I, th- I think there are responsibilities now being carried where. If you've trained some kind of neural network to recognize faces or user behavior, for example, you are by, by under legislation having to eliminate that data set if it wasn't anonymized, but you could keep the model. And so it's, it's a tough kind of trade-off where, you know, do I, do I keep trying to collect data or do I have a robust enough model that I can deploy it? And so companies are kind of having to reevaluate their machine learning strategy um, and privacy is, of course, taking precedence in that. Yeah, I didn't think about any of this stuff. Very interesting. Hmm. <laughs> So where where do you see um, your your company and your models making the greatest headway, you know, over the next six months or a year? Right, right. I mean, as a deep tech startup, we've we uh, you know have invested in in research and intellectual property from great universities that we think will have a big delta on what's to come, and we'll be solving emerging problems, you know, that are, are pertinent to systems of tomorrow. So I, what's happening is we keep seeing more sophisticated deep learning come out. Things that are handling you know multitask. It's not just about saying oh, this is a photo of, you know, a cat or a dog. We're now going far, far, far beyond that to navigating, having image understanding, having a semantic gauge of what's going on. And so to handle these workloads, to handle this, I guess, this kind of holy grail of general AI, we have to do so at a right power budget and at a right, you know, all these form factors you mentioned, like latency and connectivity. And so I think where DeepLight aims to play is by, by and large, helping this technology scale without... With, with while keeping a level playing field. So I guess to use the word de- democratizing it. Because as, you, as this technology becomes less nascent, it becomes more ubiquitous, it's going to get difficult for some companies to keep up while remaining attached to their core business. And so I think what DeepLight and what our team really wants to do most of all is to make sure it remains accessible and that the kind of latest and greatest in deep learning can still be utilized by innovative companies that aren't just you know the big techs and the big uh, Amazons, Googles, et cetera, of the world. Okay, very good. So um, who would be a customer for you and who wouldn't? Is it you know just larger concerns that are trying to implement uh, AI models? Yeah. You know, who's you an know, ideal we, customer we've for seen, you? Um, we've seen interesting traction and have good partners right now in three different vertical markets. So the first vertical for us is, is smartphone devices. There's really cool new products coming out where you, know, you can shop through the camera app on your phone, a really powerful virtual assistants, but of course, without draining the cell phone battery and while keeping the right response time for users is one of the projects we're working on in smartphones. Second vertical is surveillance and security systems. Huge, huge distributed systems in East China, for example, or East Asia and China, for example, where you might have 10 million cameras all processing information. And so to do so without you know, a data center consuming exorbitant amounts of power is an interesting project as well. And lastly is automotive, as I mentioned. So traffic cameras, uh, self-driving vehicles, those three verticals are where we're actively engaged and will likely remain engaged with, uh, you know, going in the near future. Okay, very good. So what's the best way to, to get in touch? You know, we kind of mentioned it in the beginning, but you can mention it again. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, yeah, we are based in Montreal. We had a really cool incubator called Tandem Launch. Uh, I think about an eight-year-old startup incubator investment fund in Montreal that's responsible for some really cool commercialization and university research uh, and great startup activity happening here. So we're doing a few open houses this summer, I think uh, coming up in September. Uh, we'll be at a lot of the academic events uh, in the fall in, in the space. Uh, by and large, we're hiring. We're always looking to grow the team. Anyone in kind of AI, deep learning, reinforcement learning expertise, definitely head to our LinkedIn or website. 
uh, to check out what we're up to. And yeah, we're looking forward to getting more engaged with the community at large. Well, very good. Well, Davis, thanks for coming on and I appreciate your time. Awesome, Richard. Thanks for the questions. Always fun to, to talk about um, you know, AI and the industry and some of the challenges. I really appreciate the time. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.